0: You know, for our evening service, um, <coughs> Jay and uh, Matt Lee and Jeff Cheney and myself will be giving a report. Um, we'll be doing that informally uh, about the General Assembly, but uh, as, as Jay mentioned earlier, it was uh, a great blessing. You are, uh, your church is blessed uh, have not um, self excluded from that, but <laughs> three very able representatives who participated in the assembly work uh, at, a, at a very high level. Uh, you'll hear more about that tonight. But uh, this morning, we're back to First John uh, chapter 5. And I'll be reading 12 verses. Give your attention to the Word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ The Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And Father, blessed to understanding the reading and the exposition of your infallible and Errant word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've we've said it over and over again, but we'll say it one more time that the theme of this epistle of 1 John is love. The love of God for his people and the love of God that is produced in God's people for his people. The summary of everything that God expects of us is summarized in love. And love is not merely an emotion. It certainly is an emotion. But it is much more than that in the Word of God. Love is defined in first John by the Apostle John as it is throughout the Bible how do we how do we love God it, it, it's, we, we love him by keeping his commandments Jesus said it plainly if we love him we keep his commandments it is uh, frightening that so many believers when they when you say the word law they think of uh, something quite opposite of love Perhaps they've never read Psalm 119, verse 97, where the psalmist says, "Oh, oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation day and night." In fact, you could say that for so many uh, professing Christians, the mantra is, "Oh, I hate thy law! I don't want anything to do with law." And so many expressions that have crept into the vernacular of Christians are are based on uh, a misunderstanding of the gospel that Jesus did away with the law. Jesus made it plain in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to establish it. The world uh, will pass away and everything will pass away, but not the slightest... uh, letter, the smallest letter or the smallest punctuation mark in God's word will pass away until it is all fulfilled. The law of God is summarized by the two great commandments that you find in Matthew's gospel chapter 22. That is to love the lord your god with all of your heart with all of your mind with all of your soul and with all of your strength and also to love your neighbor as yourself john in his in this epistle speaks of this and in the uh, first four verses he repeats what he has uh, said previously over and over again that to believe in jesus that he is the christ means that you're born again you're born of god everyone who believes that jesus is the messiah has been born of god and everyone who (laughs) loves the father loves whoever has been born of him this is how you know that Your child of God is you love God and you obey his commandments. Again, this is the love of God. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that you keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. To the child of God who knows uh, he has a loving heavenly father who cares for his well-being. The commandments are the way he protects us, the way he nurtures us, the way he encourages us in this fallen world. And so the first three verses are used for introduction, which brings John to the theme to the, the, the to me to the thing that John is seeking to impart, and that is the victory of faith. How how do we overcome the world? How do we overcome the enemies of our soul? I, I quote Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones uh, quite a bit. I, I commend him to you in the study of him. Uh, the the wonderful biography, two huge volumes by Ian Murray that you'll read much faster than you ever thought possible if you get them. Um, uh, How the Lord blessed this uh, member of this tiny little um, designer denomination called the Calvinistic Methodist Church uh, in in Wales, and then then he moved on to the ministry in London at a larger church. Um, Such a man of God. Trained as a medical doctor um, and then called into the ministry. One of those uh, 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 roundabout calls to the ministry. But no, I I don't think there is a greater doctor of souls uh, in the the modern history of the church than Dr. Uh, Lloyd-Jones. And the doctor, made it clear that he thought that the primary metaphor for the Christian life, there are many metaphors for the Christian life in the Bible, but he thought and I agree with him as I often do, that the primary one is war. It is warfare. Spiritual battle. The Bible is full of war. Literal historic accounts of war. uh, Full of accounts of uh, our war in the new testament against the enemies of our soul against the the enemies that are external to the church the 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 jewish pharisees who were opposed to the ministry of jesus the whole gospel account is an account of of that battle that ongoing battle with legalism and and uh of the pharisees and the things that they would impose upon his people in in the book of Acts of the Apostles after Jesus' resurrection and ascension the the warfare uh, continues and the Apostle Paul throughout his epistles writes about this constant conflict and he writes in in the book of uh, Ephesians about putting on the whole armor of God in order to engage in this spiritual conflict and here John the Apostle Talks about victory that overcomes the world. Unlike so many of our modern wars, where there's there has not been a clear definition of victory, where so many so much time and treasure and human lives have been sacrificed for. Objectives that weren't necessarily clear. God, God's war against the enemies of our soul is very clear. What are what are we called to be at war with? Verse four makes mention of the world. Well, you said, wait a minute. I thought John said in chapter three of his his gospel, verse 16, that God so loved the world. It's the same word, right? It's used in a totally different context here. World in the sense of uh, the whole uh, sphere of uh, human life and culture and, and the creation and everything in it is certainly uh, it, one sense of it. But in this sense, John is using the word, as we often do in different contexts, to mean that whole system of evil that is aligned against God and his people. The whole system of man's religion, the whole system of of human opposition, religious and governmental opposition to the people of God. See it over and over again. Paul Paul and his companions are constantly being thrown into prison, either by the religious authorities in in one place or the government authorities in another. You have to remember that the Roman government was at its essence in the time that the Bible was written, a religious government in which the emperor demanded to be worshipped. Now he didn't mind being worshipped with all of these other gods. Well, they have a building in Rome called the Pantheon, in which all the gods were were honored. But the first god that you had to offer incense to and worship was the emperor. And over and so this is the world world system of philosophy and. And ideas that is arrayed against God. And it is the same today. We live in a world that is hostile to the God of the scriptures. The one true God revealed in the scriptures. The world. The flesh. It's not mentioned here in our text, but it is our own sinful desires. Our fallen nature that wants to gratify self, which was elevated to a religion in ancient times, and I would would suggest to you, is the main religion of our current day. Whatever is your truth and whatever, uh, whatever, whatever you feel is right. That is the same religion today. It may be called a different thing, but it is the same. The pursuit of, the, of pleasure, power, and prestige offering its shiny things for you to get you distract, distracted from the true worship of the one true God in obedience to his commandments. And we are tempted individually. We are tempted as the church, not just covenant church, but all of the visible church, to want the world to like us and to accept us, to be, to be pleasing to them in some way. There's an old expression that we used to use in the church. I can remember it growing <coughs> up. I, I never hear it. You're too worldly. We used to make, I used to hear in the churches I grew up in that that term uh, made fun of. You're you're too worldly, as if it was some kind of a, a joke. But the truth is, we are too worldly. We're too tied into the acceptance of the culture and what it wants from us we are at war against these enemies of our soul and the animator of that war, the general of that war is Satan how powerful are these enemies Satan is powerful he is a real entity the Lord Jesus met him in the wilderness met him from eternity past and he is completely subservient to the Lord Jesus but in his incarnation the Lord Jesus took flesh upon himself and he was tempted in all things like we are yet without sin and he and and right at the beginning of his public ministry the first thing that happens after his baptism by John he goes out into the wilderness and he is tempted and what is he tempted with after 40 days of fasting without food and water in the desert. He's near death. What is Satan tempted with? He tempts him with the pleasure of food that he can make with, with a act of his will to turn stones into bread to satisfy and gratify his flesh. See, that's, that's the world. I mean, that's the flesh. That's the weakness of the flesh. Tempted to satisfy and gratify ourselves with things that may be good, that are usually our good. that God is ordained for human, for the human good. Some like to say human flourishing. Food. What could be? What's wrong with bread? What's wrong with drink? What's wrong with with? The sexual relationship that God ordained in marriage if it's uh, okay in marriage why not extend that out beyond that right who should deny you any pleasure you seek tempted him with the world the devil tempted him with the world Look, the kingdoms of the world, all these can be yours. Well, they were already his, Satan. Not much of a temptation to the Lord Jesus. Tempted him with bringing in the kingdom by an act of, uh, a daring act of jumping off the temple that everyone would see and behold how amazing he was. Jesus forsook all those things. He turned away from all those things and demonstrated that he alone can overcome the enemies of our soul. Everyone, it says in verse 4 of our text, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome world. The world our faith our faith we will not win the world by being like the world we will not win the world by adopting the world's methods the only way that we can win the world Is by faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news that he came into this world to save sinners oh what power and what might is in this simple truth and the demons of hell and Satan himself hate it and they return you to something else but what overcomes the world it is it is our faith which has been given to us by God And our faith, which has an object in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to the second point of the message this morning in verses 6 through 10. It is the confirmation of faith that we should be concerned about individually and personally. How is your faith concerned? It's not talking about faith and faith. recently was at a wedding and it was it held in an interfaith chapel and it was a beautiful place but I wondered about what does that mean interfaith there's only one faith I think I know what they mean I think it was a positive thing they meant the different expressions of how we believe in Jesus I, I, and that's the way I took it but there are other what times that term is used. It means uh, faith in Muhammad, or faith in Buddha, or faith in in whatever the idea is of the day, or the God of the age. And that is a a popular teaching, even in some mainline churches, and even even beyond that, that uh, we're all just taking a different road the same place maybe you've heard that said i've heard that said by some well-meaning people it's a deadly error there is only one object of faith that can overcome the world your sinful flesh and the devil and his minions And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his work of living a perfect life and exchanging his perfect holy life for your sinful, wicked life upon the cross. This is the one who came by water and blood. Water and blood. What does that mean? What is the water? We know what the blood is. I hope we know what the blood is. That's his sacrifice, his payment for sin on the cross. I I think it's very simple. John is thinking back to his gospel, chapter one of his gospel, after he's introduced who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God who made everything, the eternal Word of God who made everything uh, uh, that is by the Word of his power. Who came? Who who tabernacled upon us? Who took flesh upon Himself and lived in this, uh, lived in His human body uh, like we would, except most importantly, without sin. And then He exchanged that for us. And then He went out into the wilderness and was tempted. And then He was uh, before He before He rather went out into the wilderness and was tempted. He went out into the wilderness beyond the Jordan, in Bethany beyond the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, where the children of Israel, one day with uh, years earlier, had entered into the Promised Land. He went out into that same place where they crossed on the other side, in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and was baptized by the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, who didn't want to do it because he knew who he was standing before the perfect son of God, and Jesus says, no, Permit it to fulfill all righteousness. And when he was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, behold, my, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Mark's gospel adds. This is the object. He came through that water, that fulfilled the righteousness. And then he went all the way through life perfectly and died on the cross and shed his blood. Some scholars think, and this is a possibility too, that when the Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side upon the cross after he had died, outflowed water and blood from his side. Spirit is the one who testifies, and the Spirit is in truth. It is the truth. John is concerned. the heresy of the day that John is dealing with was the heresy of Gnosticism again, and this heresy said that that uh, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism and he left him before he went to the cross. That's what the, the you know people make up cookie stuff in order to attract a following. And, and the devil loves to crank out lies, and this is his lie. And John is writing this verse directly to that heresy, that early heresy of Gnosticism. And there is something like it everywhere in the church from the beginning. And it's everywhere in the church today. There is so much... I had, a, I had a philosophy teacher in seminary. He used to call it "damned nonsense," because it is literally that. It is. It is not just stupid stuff that people make up. It's stuff that it's it's the, it's stupid stuff that will send you to hell if you believe. It. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit didn't come on Jesus and then leave Jesus. The Father, uh, even though he forsook Jesus on the cross, there never was a time he was not united to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. It's it's something we need to closely guard and hold. Again, Jesus was baptized, not because he had anything to be cleansed from, but he was baptized in order to, to show that he would be the perfect sacrifice for sins. That's the Holy Spirit, that's God the Father speaking from heaven. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus paid it all. On the cross. He paid all of your sin debt. If you're a child of God. He paid it all. And there is a threefold witness to that. And if your Bible's like mine, it's modified the uh, language of seven that appears in the Old King James version that was was probably added later by some zealous scribe that makes explicit the Trinity. But but you don't have to have that added to make it explicit. It's the Father. It's the Word, which is the Son of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit. The water. And the blood that testify. These are the three witnesses that testify about who Jesus is. There are still people who deny this cardinal tenet of the Christian faith. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, I know the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the truth of the Trinity is on every page of the Bible. And it is no more explicit than in this passage. You see it clearly here. So clearly that there, there were uh, uh, perhaps jealous scribes who wanted to make it even more clear. But you don't have to have that to understand the truth of the Trinity. Let me use the words of B.B. B. Warfield to make it really plain. There is but one God the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit is each God. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. E.B. Warfield says, if we say this, we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity In its completeness we do not believe as we are accused by Orthodox Jewish people and Muslim people and some others in three gods we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons this is the faith that confirms our relationship with the Father through the Son, by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how we come into a relationship with Him. And any teaching that would diminish that doctrine, diminish that truth, is of the devil himself. And we should be aware of it. No matter how much, how nice our Mormon neighbors might be, or our Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Friends might be, I call them Jehovah's False Witnesses. Amen. Because their God is not the God of the Bible, not the triune God of Scripture. Not of the not the God the, the God, the uh, Jesus who was just a good man that the mainline church so often teaches, a great prophet, as false religions often say. No. He is no less than the Son of God who entered into this world to take away our sins. And how important is this to our salvation and to our faith and to the confirmation of our faith? Verse 10 tells us whoever believes in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And finally, in these last two verses, we see the results of faith. The result of faith... What is the result of confirming our faith in, in Jesus' finished work? His person and his finished work on the cross and his finished work of the resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father where we're told he ever lives. To intercede for the saints. The result of that faith is salvation through the saving work of the triune God. It is eternal life. In his son it is the fullest most abundant life you could ever possibly imagine not just heaven when you die and that's certainly in view but in the meantime before you get there it is the greatest life you could possibly have Jesus made it clear in his teaching that this is why he came not to not to uh, make your life miserable, not to put you under uh, the the burden and bondage of things that were not possible. That's what the Pharisees and the false teachers did, and that's what they do today. The most miserable people in the world, the most hate-filled people in the world are religious people who want to advance their cause by destroying themselves and everyone around them. No, Jesus said, I have come, in John's Gospel, chapter 10, in verse 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. I've come, not that you you would be miserable, that you'd be full of joy and gladness and happiness. If you have the Son, it says in verse 12, you have the life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus didn't come to to give you death and judgment if you are his child. He came to invite you to the feast, his marriage supper celebration forever. fastly closing, have you confessed your faith? Has your faith been confirmed in Jesus? If not, I would urge you by the mercy of God to not wait another moment. To not move from where you are until you have completely committed your soul to him that you have recognized how sinful you are apart from him and how miserable you are. And whatever you're pursuing apart from Jesus, whether it's pleasure of the moment or whether it's the affirmation of people or, or whether it's uh, some kind of worldly recognition or some kind of control of others, Whatever it is that's driving you and motivating you, if it's not the Lord Jesus, you need to be repentant and turn from it to put your faith and trust in the living God. To do it now, we have before us the Lord's Supper. We call this uh, a sacrament which is a which is a um, means of grace by which these ordinary elements show forth the, the, the beauty of the, the body and blood of Jesus given for sinners and the purpose behind this is that these are tangible things that, that Christ has given the church until he returns to remind us of how real that salvation is we hold them in our hand we put them in our mouth we take that into ourselves It's a reminder of our union with Christ. And before that takes place, though, we we invite those who truly know Christ to this table. Before that takes place, it needs, uh, and, and you receive these symbols of that truth spiritually. To affirm that truth, you need to really receive Christ first and come to where you understand that you are without hope in this world except from his sovereign merciful grace that he offers freely as a free gift to anyone who would reach out from the heart with a from the heart with a with a hand of gratitude and say thank you for what you've done for me I, who deserve death and hell forever, you have forgiven and given life. I urge you not to leave your seat or move at all until you have come to that place. Let us pray. Father, you, you know every heart. You know every mind. You know how easily distracted we are. How prone our hearts are to wander, how prone they are to leave the God we love. We're so attracted to the world and the things of the world and the affirmation of the world. Father, help us to forsake it all and put our full faith and confidence in Jesus alone, in his death alone, in his resurrection alone in his ascension where he reigns forever. And Father, we we long for the day that we're with him. Father, anyone here who's yet to come to that, may you give them this gift of faith, of trust in your word and trust in the saving work of Jesus that they might be delivered from the bondage of this world and the temptations of the devil and and fully trust in Jesus Christ. And may it bring about a transforming power that they've never known before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel of grace by giving ourselves and our gifts in our morning arms.